Well, as I said, we are now coming to the end of the book of Amos. I know for some of you that kind of brings a collective sigh of relief, but for others, um, it's going to be another sobering message once again because it's just continuing to deal with judgment against Israel. Now, all throughout the book, we've seen that this nation of Israel has believed in some way, shape, or form that they can outrun the judgment of God. Though he has told them at the very beginning, it's set in stone, over and again, we find that they, they hear this message that the northern kingdom is to collapse and that they are going to fall with it. And yet, even at the end of eight chapters of unrelenting warnings of judgment, apparently what's needed is one more. Now, despite hearing everything that they've heard, they really don't understand how dire their situation is. They have heard that God is a consuming lion, that he has let out this roar of judgment just before he pounces for the kill, and yet they presume that they can avoid that. They hear that they are going to stand before God and give an account of their entire lives, and again, they presume they can avoid that. Despite hearing that God views them as a lifeless corpse, I believe that was chapter 5, despite hearing they are utterly deceived and wayward, they trust in idols that could not save them. Again, they presume they can outrun God. They hear that God despises them in their pride. They hear they don't measure up to the plumb line of God's word. They hear that they think trite thoughts about the judgment of God. And in the end, they still presume they can avoid it altogether. Now, if you want a brief summary of the book of Amos, that's really about it. They hear over and again this warning of a judgment that is to come, and yet they just flippantly ignore it. They continue in their sin, and God continues in doubling down against them, and yet they presume they can avoid his wrath. Now, today, this is going to be really the final word of judgment that's given to them, and it is perhaps the most severe form of judgment that he tells them, because he is looking at this apostate nation, and he tells them, you have utterly nowhere to run and hide. You cannot avoid judgment, though you think you can. Now, the reason for this is actually rather simple when we get down to the end of things, and that's because he is revealing characteristics of himself. In other words, he says, I see all things, I control all things, and I will reveal all things, and therefore, the only person you are fooling is yourself. Now, as we look to the text today, we're going to see how all of that plays out within the final chapter of Amos here. We'll start right away with verse 1. Notice the prophet says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, smite or strike the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Now, the chapter opens up with a depiction of God standing beside this altar to deliver once again this oracle of judgment against the nation. And there's a rather large amount of debate on what exactly he's talking to when he's saying about this altar here. Some believe he's talking about the altar that was at the site of Bethel, and it's simply because Bethel is mentioned a number of times throughout the book, but also we saw this is where everything goes down between Amos and Amaziah. Others believe, though, he's speaking about the whole kingdom of Israel here, and that's the position I take for a number of reasons. Uh, The first being that in the beginning of the book, He promises judgment upon both the northern and the southern kingdom in chapters 1 and 2. And this section just simply returns to that theme once again of a national judgment, not simply the judgment of the northern kingdom, although that is undoubtedly part of it. 
But then at the end of the chapter, we see this national restoration of Israel. Now, the second, if you look down real quickly to verse 8, is that all the way down there, God refers to them as his house of Jacob. Now, this particular name references all 12 tribes of Israel and not simply the northern kingdom. And then the third reason I believe this is the case, that is he's speaking of the whole kingdom of Israel here, is that as we've continued to progress through this prophecy and see that from chapter to chapter, not only is judgment awaiting, but there's this continued theme of the day of the Lord, that all of this speaks to this end times language, if you will. And each of these sections has all of Israel in mind. Now, this becomes, again, painfully clear when we get to verses 11 through 15, but I won't devote time to that today, so we are only going to verse 10. Uh, Lord willing, next time I get to preach, we will cover that. The point of this section, though, is simply that God is standing besides the altar, and that means that he is expressing dominion over every aspect of it. Though the people pervert any sense of justice, they pervert any sense of true worship, they offer false sacrifices, God is nonetheless the sovereign one who stands next to the altar, and he is saying in, in a sense that though they have perverted everything about this system, God himself will purify it. But the means by which he is going to purify it is through judgment. In other words, this rebellious people is going to bear the full weight of their sins. They have no sense of escape. They have no hope. They will be condemned. And this is why he ultimately says, strike the capital so the thresholds will shake. Now, the first description of this judgment here is, is a destruction of the temple itself. So he's speaking to the idea that this capital, though that might sound slightly misleading to you, is, is really the top of these pillars that sustained the roof of the structure. So when you strike the capitals, the structure is unsound. He's saying from the top to the bottom, essentially, whatever bears the weight to the bottom of the floor, strike these, and they will shake so violently that they only have room to topple. And then what's more than this is it's actually going to collapse on the people that are there and kill them. That's the idea here. And yet this is just the first fruits of judgment that we see throughout this entire nation. Judgment starts at the place that God has promised to dwell. Again, it's the household of God, right? And so the destruction of the temple is not simply designed to show them that God will remove his presence from their midst, which is incredibly harsh, but that everything will be this nonstop cycle of judgment thereafter throughout the entire nation. In other words, all who fail to repent will be swept up in this judgment from the most powerful and the most prominent people of the society all the way down to the least. Those who do not trust in Yahweh will die. And this leads to the second description, which we saw already in verse 1. He says that the, those who escape the judgment at the temple, meaning those who escape the pillars crashing upon their heads, will not escape the sword. Likewise, those who seek sanctuary somewhere else will not escape judgment either. The idea, though, is that God himself is the one who is going to pursue them down to the last man and exact his vengeance upon them. He will hunt them down to the ends of all creation, if need be, and this is what we see in verses 2 through 4. So if you'd look down with me, we're going to see that this short section just simply shows their utter hopelessness to avoid wrath and judgment when God has said that he will judge them. So if you look again, notice he says, though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And the section just continues to detail this. The, the reality is that no matter what efforts they go to, to try and avoid his wrath, he promises that he will find them. 
He will hunt them down. He will pursue them relentlessly, and they will not escape. Again, verse 2, he says, even if they dig into Sheol, which is just another way of saying, no matter how far down you go, I will find you. From there, I will take you by my hand. Again, even if you ascend to the heavens, no matter how high you can go, from there, I will bring you down. In verse 3, he says, even if you hide in the mountains, from there, I will search you out and remove you. Even if you manage to get to the bottom of the ocean floor, I will send a snake to bite you. So he's showing the utter futility of no matter what they try to do. Then finally, in verse 4, we see this last hypothetical situation where God promises them, even if you reason with yourselves that slavery is better than death, and, and who wouldn't choose that option when faced with the two, right? He says, you will not avoid the sword. Even if you go to be in exile in a strange land, from there I will hunt you down. Now, you can start to hear the rationalizations the Israelites might have at this point, because in their heart of hearts, they ultimately don't believe that God can deliver on what he promises here. They just simply don't believe it. If they did believe that, they would have repented way earlier in this book. They still think they have a way to avoid wrath. They still think they can avoid judgment, but he's showing them time and again, and he's done so throughout the entire book by this point, that it is futile. In response, he deals with every hypothetical situation possible, and then he just simply wraps it up rather neatly at the end of verse 4 by saying, I will set my eyes against you for evil and not for good. I will set my eyes against you for evil and not good. Now, the language that he's been using all through this section is very, very similar to David's in Psalm 139. Now, don't flip there. You can simply listen. But he asks, that is, David asks, where can I go to hide from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, to King David, these, these are words of comfort for him. He has enemies that are surrounding him and accusing him falsely. He has the God that he knows who sees all things and knows all things that he can go and plead before because God will be the one who is just and right in the end. God has known the thoughts of David long before David was even born. And so the answer to David, at least, why he has comfort is simply that God is to him all-encompassing. He is all around him at all times. And ultimately, he is an ever-present source of life and comfort for him. He's going to right any wrongs that were done. He will make all things right. But for the Israelites here, this is a word of terror. This is a word of terror. This is not a comfort to them. This is answer to a question that is being implied by them, which is simply them asking, where can we go to hide from the gaze of God? Now, the answer is rather simple, especially when we look at what the text says. It's nowhere. His eyes are set against them for evil, meaning that instead of receiving God's blessing, they are cursed of God. And so the reality is that in that curse, they are now subject to the gaze of God, which will find them no matter where they go. The point is that, once again, there is no safe place in all of heaven and all of the earth for them to hide. They have nowhere to go. God is everywhere at all times. And so he's saying to them, in a sense, you cannot even keep your thoughts from God. He knows everything you think. Long before the thought even entered into your brain to try and escape and flee the wrath that is to come, God knew it. Wherever you try to run and hide, God has known the place that you think is safe. Yahweh will be waiting for you, O Israel. 
That's what he's saying here. And in, in, in the end, it just demonstrates that God is the one who is sovereign or above all things. He knows all things. He sees all things. And thus, there is no place to hide. Now, if you're in Christ today, that is an incredibly beautiful reality for you, is it not? You know that like David, you can rest in the fact that God is ultimately the sovereign one, that he knows all things and he sees all things. And for you, that's actually a blessing because he knows that, let's say 20 years from now, you go to visit a doctor, you sit in the office, it's a routine checkup. That routine checkup leads to a series of tests and those tests lead to the verdict that you have cancer. God knows long before you ever know of that, what has happened and how you will react to it. And he knows how to sustain you through it. But the reality is that long before anything came into existence, God has known that reality. He knows that no matter who betrays you or who speaks ill of you or who takes your dearly beloved child from you, that God will make all of those things right at the end. He knows that no matter how far you may sink down into despair and hopelessness, that God is actually there with you. The beautiful thing is that if you're in Christ, that's a comfort to you. He knows your pain. He knows everything that goes on inside of your heart. He sees you in your distress. For you, God's pursuit of you, his knowledge of everything means that he knows your deepest, darkest sins even, all the ones from the past, the present, and the future. And in spite of all of that, he still sees you as you are in Christ. He has utterly forgiven you of everything. He knows what sins you will commit long before they've even entered into your heart and mind. He knows your temptations. He knows your weaknesses. He knows everything. And beloved, he loves you because you are in Christ. He sees you as holy and blameless, and we can't even fathom that, can we? At least if we're honest, I know my own sin and my own heart. I know for some of you, you always beat yourself up within an inch of your spiritual life, but the reality is that God knowing all things and seeing all things for you is an incredibly good thing because we don't have to make excuses. We don't have to try and justify ourselves. We have no reason to hide because Christ is the one who justifies if we flee to him, we are forgiven. If you're not in Christ, though, none of this is true for you. It should be a terrifying reality because no matter what you try to do to avoid God, you, you cannot. No matter how you may sulk into the darkness, even the darkness becomes light to God. He sees through our lies. He sees through all of our manipulation. He sees through our justifications. He knows all things. He sees all things. And he has known these things for all eternity. Meaning there's never been a point where God doesn't know. He knows our deepest, darkest sins, past, present, future. And the reality is that it should be a terror to you because God will not pass by. No matter what lengths you may go to, he will find and he will make you bear the full weight of your sin. That's the terrifying reality of this, if you're not in Christ. Well, God warned the Israelites of this over and again. He tells them there is no place now to hide from the wrath of God, and yet they still do not believe it. Every bit of it's designed to paint us into a corner simply because we need to genuinely realize how desperate we are how desperate we are. 
It's not so you may be thinking you're better than anybody else, but really because you're dead in sin. He wants us to break down, essentially, and to seek him in mercy because that is the only place we can genuinely be safe from the wrath to come. And yet, much like the Israelites, many simply do not believe that God actually really does know all things. They don't believe he sees all things. Even if you are in Christ, let me ask you, how often do you think of things like that? Well, the reality is that God is not only all-knowing, he is all-powerful. And that's now what verses 5 through 6 show us. If you look down once again, he writes, The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn, and all that rises up like the Nile and subdues like the Nile of Egypt, the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth, he who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. Yahweh is his name. Now, verse 5 depicts God actually coming to the earth in his physical form. He is not simply standing above it and sending an angel down. It is God himself, and everything buckles under the sheer weight of his glory and power and magnificence. And it is, to put it, frightening. It is awe-inspiring. He is referred to him, or he refers to himself here, as a Lord God of hosts. Now, we've seen that come up a few times as we've been making our way through the book of Amos, but this phrase is just a litany of words in the Hebrew that really describe God's sovereignty once again, that he is above all things, including every aspect of human affairs. He refers to himself by the name that he gave to Israel, that is Yahweh, and so it speaks to the fact that he is the one who has always been and is now and will be. He is the great I am. He is the eternal one. And yet beyond that, it speaks to the fact that he is the God of the covenant that he has sworn with Israel. He will keep his covenant. Undoubtedly, in this case, we see referring to those cursings in Deuteronomy 28. He has sworn by his own name, in other words, to judge Israel. And therefore, there is no greater thing to swear by. The reason for that is because Israel failed to uphold the covenant. They rebelled. They hated God. Then he also refers to himself here as Adonai, that is, master or Lord, and that simply means he's the king. And yet more than this, we know he is the king of kings. He is the highest of dignitaries. There is no other higher authority than him. What he says is. And thirdly, he describes himself as the one who controls all of the armies, not only of the heavens, but of the earth. Every single army that has ever existed in all of time and space belongs to Yahweh. In a word, he is basically saying, I'm the one who stands eternal when all the powers come and go throughout history, but they are subject to my demands. In other words, God is the ultimate one in charge in every conceivable way. And this is why the prophet simply launches into this terrifying reality or depiction of judgment. When he comes to the earth, notice that what he says here, he touches the earth. It's just a mere touch, and the earth melts. And as a result of that, all who experience it mourn. It's further described as this ebb and flow of a river, and when you think about the solid ground underneath you rippling like an ocean, that's terrifying. Now think of that happen right here and now. If everything just swayed and you lost your balance and you lost your sense of equilibrium, 
Now, I've never experienced an earthquake myself, but I know from everyone who has that that's in some sense similar to what's being described here. The one solid ground that you plant your feet on betrays you, and you know that it should not be the way it is. Your, your balance, again, is thrown off. Your equilibrium is off. You cannot even stand straight. Everything's crashing down to the ground because the, everything sways and it feels like water. The solid ground feels like water. What's described here is obviously similar to that, but much, much more. It's of epic proportions because this is not a natural event that happens. It's actually supernatural. The reality is that God himself is touching the earth and the earth is melting under his power. I mean, it's melting. Think about that. Think of how crazy that would be to see. But beyond being crazy, think of how powerful the God is that can touch something and make it melt that could betray every sense of what we know as physics and throw the earth into disarray simply by touching it. And that's really the point here. He is the all-powerful one. He is the one in full control of all creation. It bends to his will. The stark reality is that God is simply saying, listen, you can go and run and hide, but I can touch the earth and make it melt. There is no safe place to hide. At a mere touch, I can topple the mountain you seek to hide yourself in. You go down to the depths of the sea, and from there I will send a creature who does not even belong there to strike you. And yet more than this, God is not merely a God who manipulates the earth and subjects all things to his will. God is the one who sits enthroned above all things. Again, he is the king of kings. Verse 6 depicts God in his dwelling place, or his palace, if you will, that is far above the earth, meaning he is looking down upon the earth. It is under his domain. The language simply describes creation as a palace in which God lives. And yet far more than this, the best of the best in heaven is reserved for God's chambers. The point is simply to show that God sits enthroned. He is the ruler, and thus all of creation itself is his. He not only controls the earth and everything it contains, but he, he controls all things that happens in time and space from his throne room. He is in heaven at the highest of heights, meaning he is in control of not only the earth, but of heaven. He is a rightful king. He is a rightful ruler. Nothing does not belong to him. The reason why we even have rain is because God makes it so. The logical conclusion, and knowing that all of these things are true, at least as how he's depicting it here, is that, again, there is no place to run and hide. If God has set his eyes against you for evil rather than for good, there is nowhere, beloved. He sits in heaven. He does all that pleases him because there is no greater ruler or authority or king in all creation than him. He submits to no one. There's a reason why the psalmist says God sits in the heavens and laughs at the wicked, of which we were all once wicked. It's as simple as this. God is God. There is no one like him. And you and I are mortals. We are men and women. We cannot stand or hide against the God of this universe. And this is why at the end of verse 6 here, if you look down again, he brings everything to a resounding pause. Because he says, Yahweh is his name. God is his name. The I am is his name. 
In other words, he is the one in control, not you and I. He is the one in charge of all things and gives all things their life. He is the one who tells all things what to do and all creation obeys. But when you get to you and I, we have the audacity to rebel. We have the pride to say no. He is the one who controls all things from start to finish. Kingdoms rise and fall at his beck and call. And it's all done, beloved, to accomplish his will. And the reality being shown to Israel here then is that God is not merely one who sees all things and knows all things. It's that God is the all-powerful one. He is the everlasting one. He is one in control of all things. Again, the earth melts at his touch. The seas burst forth at his command. The rain falls at a mere utterance of the word. Life and death are in his hands. Before him, there was no other God formed, nor after him is there any other God. He is the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the Great I Am, and we are men. Now, for you in Christ, again, this is an incredibly beautiful reality, isn't it? That God is the one that's in control of all things, that God is the sovereign one, and you know this is a comfort because you know that without a shadow of a doubt, despite how bad things can get, he is in control. You know that as the world grows cold and wickedness seems to prevail, that ultimately God wins, right? It doesn't matter what happens after that, nor I should say before that. You know, as things spiral out of control, the reality is that you are in the hands of the Almighty God and that nothing is going to work for evil against you. He promises, in fact, all things will be for your good. And more importantly, though, you know that God will ultimately triumph over sin, Satan, and death. At the end of all days, he will welcome you into his kingdom because he has dealt with your sin through Christ. You know that Christ comes back, and when he returns, you will finally be free of the tension of sin. You will finally be free from everything that plagues you each and every day simply because you live in a broken and fallen world. You know he will judge all things. He'll put an end to pain and suffering. He'll put an end to everything in this life that is against you. This life, beloved, is the worst that you will have it. It is the worst that you will have it. Every single day in his presence will only ever increase your joy, your love, and your praise to him because of all that he has done. You know that God sits in the heavens. He does all that pleases him, and that's a good thing because God himself is good, and he gives you all good things, that he loves you, and that one fateful day, he will bring you out of this earth and bring you home. For those who are not in Christ, though, this is, again, not for you. This is a terrifying reality. The only promise that belongs is the same as what was given to Israel. God has set his eyes against you for evil and not for good. This life is the best you will have it if you do not repent. While you may believe that you are in control, while you may believe that you are the one who controls your fate and your destiny, ultimately, even now, God directs your steps towards judgment. That's true for any who are outside of Christ. 
any who are outside of Christ. God gives you good gifts. He has rain fall upon the just and the unjust, but those good gifts will only ever serve to condemn because they did not result in praise and glory to our creator. But the good gifts you will not receive, especially when all is said and done, if you fail to repent and trust in Christ, is that you will not be given forgiveness, you will not be given mercy, you will not be given everlasting life, and many, many more things, all because you will be in your sins. We tend to think of sin as this big list of things that we have done. And while that's true in one sense, the greater reality is that sin is not so much of what you do as what you are. You are a sinner and therefore you sin. Romans talks about this grand sin of mankind being a lack of thanks to God and a worship of the creation rather than the creator. In other words, it is not this gigantic list of things. It is simply the fact that you do not honor your Lord. You do not honor your creator. But at the end of all days, what is said besides that if you do not bow the knee now, you will bow the knee then. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God is the sovereign one, and as the sovereign one, he will bring you to bow. We will give an account for everything we've ever thought, said, or done, and there will be no safe place to hide on that day save Jesus Christ. He will reveal all things and he will separate his children from those who are not his children. And this is ultimately what we see in our final few verses of chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Now, the first thing we need to understand about this section is that God is simply speaking to the reality that not all of those who are in Israel are his children. He says, not all that claim to be my children are my children. That's in verse 7, essentially. He asks these Israelites, are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? Have I not brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Aramaeans from Kir? Now, this would have been an utterly shocking statement to them simply for the reality that they know God has uniquely covenanted with Israel. They are unique out of all the people of the earth. And yet he says to these people, these apostates, you are not all that unique. The Philistines, the Aramaeans are better or bitter enemies of Israel. They have been for generations at this point. They've long waged war between one another. And he says, in essence, I've even delivered them out of the bondage of those who were before you. The point he is making here is that simply that God cares for all. As he cared for the Israelites, he cared for the Ethiopians and the Philistines. Again, these people that they hate. Remember, God is the sovereign one. Israel does, in fact, enjoy this unique relationship with him out of all the people of the earth, and yet, nonetheless, all people are God's possession. There is not one single person on the face of the planet who is not belonging to God. It demonstrates to them even further, though, especially in the midst of the throes of judgment, that the rise and fall of any kingdom owes its onus to God. And so all he's doing is inflicting a wound on their sense of false pride. He says, you believe you are God's chosen nation. You believe that my judgments will always be to your benefit rather than your detriment. You know that I judge the wicked, but you think, no matter how wicked you get, that I will pass by and not bring you under my judgments. That I will overlook it simply because you are born into this nation. 
Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on the same theme in the book of Romans, especially 9 through 11. He speaks of those who reject Christ as their Messiah, and we hear those words that are often repeated, unfortunately, not correctly, but those who are not, or those who are Israel are not of Israel, not necessarily, or not all those who are of Israel are Israel. The point he makes through that entire section is that the promises of God have not failed, that indeed Israel is still God's chosen nation. He has set his sights upon them as a unique people, but that those, not all who are born into that nation are of his people. He's saying that simply because you are flesh and blood, a Hebrew, does not make you my chosen people. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament as well, especially when we get to the minor prophets, right? They speak of a people who are known as this nation of Israel, and yet they never actually came to love God, and they never, therefore, submitted themselves to God. He calls them essentially lawbreakers and oathbreakers and covenant breakers, and he says they cannot inherit the kingdom of God because these things, or as Paul would put it, the wrath of God has been revealed against such things. And the reason is simply that they do not actually worship God. They worship various idols time and again, and even though they have routinely been judged for it, the only thing that ever happens is they fail to repent for these apostates. Now, that's the difference between a true child of God and one who is not a genuine child of God. The genuine child of God may sin, but the reality is that they will always turn under the Lord's discipline in repentance. They will always do so. And the reason for that is because God is faithful. The reason why you endure under discipline is because God is faithful to his promise. If it were up to you, beloved, you would lose your salvation. This goes all the way back, though, for the nation of Israel. It goes all the way back to the promise that God made Abraham. God promises Abraham he's going to make them or him into this great nation. The ends of the earth are all going to be blessed through him. Through him, the Messiah would come. That great nation is the nation of Israel, as we see throughout our Old Testament. And so in the midst of that, though, you find a people who are God's people, but you find also those who are unfaithful to God. We see them here today. God judges them for that. He, in the midst of that, though, he preserves them and promises to preserve them. Think of Israel when they were going into the promised land. Right? There is a generation that apostatizes, and they must die off in the wilderness before Israel can inherit the land. That is the same thing happening here, except they must go into exile, and that apostate generation must die off in exile before their children can come back to the land. Now, from that generation in exile, he is promising that God is going to raise a people for himself. He will preserve them. In other words, it's that name we know as the remnant. God sets apart this people. He does so throughout all of their history, and we see this no more clearly than in verse 8 here today. It says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. So the apostate Israel believed that this was for them, at least this glimmer of hope was for them. They believe God set their or his sights on them in a special way, and they're, of course, going to be vindicated by that. But for them, it was for evil and not for good. He looks upon this sinful, rebellious people, and he promises again right here 
Judgment is coming. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Total annihilation. I'm going to wipe every one of you out, all of you who reject my word. And so what he's saying is simply that that generation, that unbelieving generation must die. God is once again proving faithful to his word and covenant all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy where he says, I will curse those who curse Israel, where he gives them cursings for disobedience to the law. But nevertheless, God gives a small glimmer of hope here, does he not? He says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. They're still going to be destroyed, but not every one of them. That's the glimmer of hope. There's still judgment coming. There's still wrath coming, but not everyone will die. We can't conceive of that as hope. Imagine if that were said here. This half of the room will live. This half will die. Would you find that hopeful? When God refers to the council of Jacob here, he's not referring to this northern kingdom, but all 12 tribes. And he is saying, if you recall, Jacob is the son of Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham. And Jacob fathers these 12 children that are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. They bear those names, right? He is saying that these 12 tribes are the heirs to God's promises to Abraham, which is that he will build them into a great nation and preserve his people. And yet he's saying at the same time that not everyone born into that nation is of God. They're not of Israel. So we have two vastly different people in this passage today. We have true heirs to the promise. We have those who are the house of Jacob, and we have those who believe falsely that they belong to Israel. They belong to God. They are the heirs to the promise. In other words, they're deceived. One will be spared and one will not be. The ones who are spared are only spared by the sheer grace of God, though. Beloved, this is a doctrine of election, but applied consistently with Israel as well. So if you are one who believes that God cannot fail in his promises, if you are one who believes that God will not cause one to lose their salvation, which is simply what the scriptures teach, then we have to do something with the scriptures that promise Israel. We, we have to do better than trying to spiritualize them and make them about the church to a people who knows nothing about the church. And none of these people have any reason to hope if, they, if this passage is about the church and not them. I hear that. They have no reason to hope because they're all going to die but they know that God will not utterly destroy Israel. And we also have to do something with the next two verses here because they speak of this end times judgment. But then especially when we get to verse 15, which Lord willing, I'll get to cover at another time, we're going to have to do something with that too because he tells them they will not ever again be taken out of the promised land. Never again. And for a people in the midst of the throes of judgment, this is literally the only glimmer of hope they have but it's not even for their own generation. That's the sticking point. It's not even for them. It's for their children and their children's children. And so they are heirs according to the promise, but it's their children. They will not go back to the lands. Many of them will die, but those who come back after them will come back and never be departed again. Again, Lord willing, I'll be able to get to that as we cover that next time I preach in 11 through 15. But for our purposes today, the same theme comes through, doesn't it? 
God is going to judge the apostate in their midst, and yet he says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. I will not utterly destroy all of Israel. And so how, how does God do that? Well, we find in the last two verses here that much like any other instance God judges a nation, he reveals the people for who they are, and he separates them accordingly. In other words, he's going to separate the wheat from the tares as we know it. Now look down with me for the final couple verses here. He says, For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all nations as a grain shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people, again, hear that, my people, will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Now, we don't know who's being commanded here. We don't even know necessarily the command, but we do know the result of the command that's being given, and that's God promising a nation. He's taking them and shaking it among a sieve among all the rest of the nations, and he says that not one kernel will fall to the ground, meaning not one will be spared from judgment who belongs there. In essence, the result is much the same that Christ says happens at the end of all days, where the sheep are separated from the goats and the wheat from the tares, or the wheat from the chaff. And in the end, it simply means that the wicked will be separated from the righteous, and the righteous will go to life, but the wicked shall go to judgment. Here, then, we have a statement that just simply indicts this wicked apostate people in Israel, but it also gives hope for those who will repent. It also gives hope for those who will plead on God's mercy. Now, for the righteous, that is, those who are called according to the purpose of God to be heirs to the promises of Abraham here, those who are truly Israel here, they will be revealed for who they really are. They will be swept up, though, in, in grace and mercy. For the wicked, they too will be revealed for who they are, and yet they will be swept up in judgment. And they will be swept up in judgment along with every other wicked nation that's out there. Now one will escape his piercing gaze. Everyone will be lumped together as one for the day of judgment to go to eternal death. They will die by the sword in the here and now, but they will be ushered into eternity for all who say that God's judgment is not coming. Now, again, it's important to know this is both an immediate and an eternal judgment. It's bound up within this. We know that the Assyrians are going to come in and ransack the nation, right? They're going to topple this entire kingdom of Israel. And yet behind this reality lays a deeper, more terrifying reality, and that's that these guys, these people, will not enter into the rest of the Lord. Now, we've seen throughout this entire book at this point, but no more clearly than every time he references the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And that gets picked up again in verse 11 through 15, the day of the Lord on this day. They anticipate that this day would be favorable for them, that it would go well for them. They would, it would be a thing of joy and celebration. They believed this promise was for them, but the reality is that they never were a people who loved God and therefore actually looked for that day because they loved their sin. They didn't want a day without sin. They loved their sin. These people were born into the nation of Israel, but were not of Israel, not in any true sense. They abandoned all things good. They worshiped false idols. They persecuted the brethren. They perverted the law of God, and the wicked packed the courts. They packed the priesthood. They packed every political office that they could in this nation. 
And yet even the common layperson was inundated with this kind of stuff. I remember the marketplace was filled with guys who were cheating one another. Everything that characterized them was identical to the pagan nations that did not know God. The righteous were few, the wicked were many, and Amos had the unpleasant task of calling them all to repentance. Time and again, though they would not hear him and listen to him, and then therefore they would not live. What we know is they made God an enemy. They believed they could avoid his wrath, but they made him their enemy. You do not want the God of the universe as your enemy. They believed they could blend in somehow with the righteous, but he said, at that last day, I will sift all things. I will reveal all things. I will reveal the hypocrisy, the double-mindedness. He revealed their sins. And he ultimately will reveal their hatred of him. So when the day comes to separate the wheat from the chaff, or those who are born of Israel but are not of Israel, from Israel itself, it's actually rather simple for the God who sees all and knows all and controls all and reveals all things because he is sovereign. He knows the heart. And he will ultimately reveal that heart for what it is at the last great day. Now, how we know that they are an apostate people is actually rather simple as well the very end of this says that they are people who say the disaster coming will not come. They are rejecting the word of God. In other words, they reject the word. They refuse to repent. They say the day of judgment shall never come. And yet what happens, lo and behold, is that the day of judgment comes. They, re- they did not respond to his discipline. And the reality is that God's true children will respond to discipline. They will not reject his words of judgment. They will examine themselves to see if they are in the household of the faith. They will repent. Beloved, it truly is as simple as that. If you are one who lives in constant unrepentance, the Bible would not say you are a Christian. Just as like it says here that these guys are not of Israel. All of these things are going to come to be revealed, he says. And this is the final death blow to the nation. But if we're honest or if we're smart, it's the final death blow to us. And the reason for that is because we know that outside of Christ, we literally have nothing to hope in. Just like God being able to see and know all things and control all things, the fact that God will reveal all things is an incredible, beautiful truth for you if you are actually in Christ Because what will be revealed are not your downfalls, not your doubts, not your struggles, not even all of the stupid sins we get caught up in. What will be revealed is Christ's righteousness. What will happen is that you will be separated from the chaff and not one will fall to the ground who belongs in God's hands. And for you, that's an incredibly good thing because it means that Christ who made the promise that not one would depart from the faith... Not one would be lost who is the Father's. That means that that's true. For you, there will never be a day of sadness or misery or pain or struggle with all of your sin. There will never be a day where you will actually cry again. All that Christ has is yours and it will be given to you. And that's an incredible thing. And so it leads me to ask, because we just we don't think of this Do you really believe in the midst of everything that you do that God genuinely loves you if you are in Christ? 
Think of that. He is not wagging his finger at you every moment of every day if you are in him. He sees you as Christ. He knows all things. He sees all things. He controls all things and reveals all things. And this is the greatest possible thing for you because despite all the stupid things we can do, he loves you because he sees Christ. There's never a moment he looks at you and does not see Christ. If you are not in Christ, though, this is not true for you. If you're one who pretends or if you're one who loves their sin, if you never repent, if you're never seeking and striving to follow Christ, if the idols of your heart are something that you love far beyond Christ, if your possessions, the money in the bank, all the things you wish you could give your children, whatever it is, if these are your joy and your treasure and a Christ is not, these promises don't belong to you. And that is a terrifying thing. God revealing all things is a terrifying reality because it means that what's true for the apostate Israel is also true for you. God today has set his eyes against you for evil and not for good. You are still under the curse of sin. You are still under the domain of darkness. You are still a child of Satan. Evil and not good befalls you. And that will be your life here and that will be your life throughout all eternity if you do not trust in Christ. There's no place in creation that is safe to hide from God's consuming gaze. Beloved, the reality is that if, if God has said that there is nothing that can separate us in all of heaven and earth from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, there is nothing that can hide you from the wrath of God if you are not in Christ Jesus. Death will come for every one of us, and the thing that matters the most at the end will be, are you his child or are you not? It doesn't matter whatever sins you love. You could be like I was as a foolish young man and pursue pleasure. But the reality is that at the end of things, God will pursue you relentlessly. He will hunt down all of humanity to the last man on that last day, and none will have an excuse. None shall escape. If you're not in Christ, things are desperate. But the wonderful thing is that you don't have to be in a desperate spot. God sent his son into the world so that he could die for the unrighteous, that he could take their punishment upon the cross and instead give them his righteousness. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. And greatest of all, he defeated death. You don't have to be afraid if you are in Christ. He rose on the third day and secured our redemption. And if you confess that he is Lord and you follow him, he will whisk you into the, his arms for all eternity and give you nothing but grace and mercy. He will not give you wrath and eternal death. He will give you grace and eternal life instead. But the reality is that we must repent. We must be born again. We must turn in faith to Christ. We must only trust in his saving work upon the cross. We must trust that we have no righteousness of our own, that he is the only righteous one, and that because of Christ, that is the only way 
we can go to be with God for all eternity in heaven. We must lose our life. We must stop pretending. We must admit we are in a desperate spot and that there is no place safe for us to hide from the gaze of God who looks upon us if we are not in Christ and says, you are not my child and you are reserved for wrath. At the last great day, I will shake you among all the grains and not one will fall to the ground, meaning all will be consumed in judgment who are destined for it. The painfully brutal reality is that nobody likes to hear that. I didn't like to hear it. I didn't want anything to do with this. But I recognized how desperate things were. And I fell on my knees and I begged God for forgiveness because I was a sinner. I deserved hell. Beloved, you don't want hell. What you want is Christ. What you want is mercy. What you do not want is wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have given us Christ. None of us would stand if it were not for the grace and mercy you would give us in him. We are sinners. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. And yet you were merciful to us and gave us that which we do not deserve, which is grace. I pray that we would not make light of that gift you have given us, that we would each and every day fall before you, recognizing that we are the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, but that you being rich in your mercy, you gave us Christ, that you made a way for us in which we could avoid the wrath to come. I pray now for those who may be here who do not know Christ, that again, you would strike their hearts, but strike them not simply with a fear of what is to come in hell, but what is theirs if they are in Christ. Strike their hearts with the loveliness of your son. Strike their hearts with the loveliness of grace and the sheer undeserved nature of what it means to be a Christian. I pray as we go home this week that you would put this upon our minds and hearts, that we would uh, not get lost in the minutia of each and every day, that we would not forget these things as we go home today and to eat and to celebrate or to do whatever else we are doing, but that you would remind us of sobriety, the cost that Christ paid on our behalf, but praise you, Father, for it. That we praise you throughout the week for it, and as we come together next week, Father, that you would lift our hearts once again to sing of your praises for all that you have done in Christ for us. Pray now that you would have your hand upon your people as they depart, that you would guide them, give them all wisdom, you'd strengthen them in the way that is in Christ. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.